I'd also like to welcome everyone and also invite us all to notice this feeling that maybe we could call sacred or just the wholesomeness of a group of people coming together like this. I always like, um, I think partly because I feel it viscerally, I feel it in my bones, like how um, what a deep groove it is for a human being to do this kind of practice, especially doing it this way together, this in a way paradoxical activity of retreating, but doing it in community together, where we're letting go of our socializing for a number of days, but we're doing that together. What a powerful and unique, but in a way also, there's deep roots to this practice. Human beings have been doing this in various forms, various ways, probably in every culture throughout time. So I think it's useful to take some moments and connect with our ancestors, you know, all of the men and women who have been in monastic settings over the centuries, various hermits and yogis and nuns and monks and lay people who have gone away into the woods, into the caves, on retreat in one way or another. All of them in some way appreciating the value of stepping out of the ordinary routines. And not as a way of saying, you know, ordinary routines are bad, but much more an appreciation in the value of this turning inward. Like this is the true place for exploration, you know, more than examining, you know, new things in life or exploring new worlds, getting to know our heart, getting to know the mind is the most relevant investigation. And so as a group of people taking on this practice of retreating for these three days, we can expect what other people have found, which is there will be probably moments of real joy, just just the joy of being free of our duties and responsibilities and the joy, feeling the gratitude and the love and the good feelings of community and feeling all the resistance coming up in, in moments where we feel how awkward it is not to be talking or awkward it is to be sitting still when our mind is racing all the different ways that resistance and aversion and impatience can manifest. So we're not going to be surprised because we know up front that's actually what we signed up for. We've signed up for all the beauty, in which case we're practicing not getting attached, letting the beauty, the goodness of the experience heal the heart, heal the mind, but not with any attachment. 
and then all the resistance, all the negativity that might come up, we also use that for insight to see that it's not personal. It's just stuff that needs to move, stuff that needs to arise and move. And as much as best we can, we give it permission to be what it is, to move as it needs to move. So as a particular theme for this retreat, I thought, you know, it would be nice, especially we have some newer people and those of us who've been on many, 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 many retreats, a number of you have been on many, 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 many retreats over the decades of your practice. So we have both. We have people relatively new to retreat practice and a number of people who've been practicing for a long, long time and probably people in between. To take a fresh look at the form of retreat practice and really understand the form, the particular activity of retreating and see it in terms of our deepest aspiration. Sometimes we call this understanding the relative and the absolute because there are a lot of relative things to being on retreat you know there's a schedule there's a form to sitting there's a way we eat our meals there's the noble silence and there's the following the five precepts and you know we can get really tight about the form if we forget about the aspiration So the form, all the different forms involved in retreating are only useful in the context of the aspiration. You could say freedom. But freedom, you know, requires a form for us, at least initially. The form becomes to look more and more like freedom the more we understand the practice. But we never leave beyond, behind the form. The form is not a problem. And so for the old timers, you know, we really appreciate the form. We don't have a problem with the form, even though we may not be so dependent on it. Just because we don't need it doesn't mean we don't do it. Just because the Buddha maybe didn't need to sit doesn't mean he didn't sit when he was 80 years old. You know, evidently a fully enlightened being. So we can have that same attitude about the form of retreating. So the first and foremost form in the retreat experience is this devotion to the present moment. And uh, it really connects with our deepest aspiration, which is to be free. But the freedom we're looking for is freedom here and now, no matter the conditions. So our devotion to the present moment is really a way to express our freedom because we're not going to be devoted to things as they are if we have an idea that I'd rather, this is the kind of moment I'm looking for, this is what I want. So the primary form, and it gets more specific than this, of course, but first and foremost, if you can remember one thing, we're practicing being devoted to the present moment. And so I want to talk about that both in terms of like, what do we mean by devotion and what do we mean by present moment? So devotion is this heartfelt, whole-hearted relationship 
or this wholehearted way of relating. So it's like total commitment, total surrender, total trust. Really love. I love in the deepest, most universal sense of the word. So sometimes, you know, people think in Theravada Buddhism, you know, they don't talk a lot about love or devotion. We are, I think, as a tradition of practice, there's a lot of love, but it's not so much, although there is some real devotion to religious objects like the statue of the Buddha or other particular visual forms, but the real devotional object in this style of practice is the love for the present moment, the deep trust in the present moment, taking refuge in the present moment. That the Whatever it is we're looking for, it's here or now or nowhere. So we don't look outside of the present moment. We keep turning to it. So we can, um, we've had several conversations at the center recently about the importance of devotional energy in practice. And as some of you know, there's now a singing, chanting group once a month, and we now have a more prominent altar and soon to be even more beautiful as we're going to install a a more substantial altar at some point uh, a community member's been working on taking a section of an old tree that's she's she's a woodcarver and she's really made beautiful you know and for some people it pushes their buttons because they you know for whatever reason just the way a person's mind condition they may think oh i don't want something external that all of these things, whether it's a statue of a Buddha or flowers on the altar or people bowing down, as some people like to do, all of these, if they're really useful, are pointing the heart, directing the heart, uh, inspiring the heart to be in love with the present moment, with things as they are. In Buddhism, we call this Dhamma. This is from the Dhammapada collection of verses from the Buddha. One who abides in Dhamma, the way things are. One who delights in Dhamma, who contemplates Dhamma, who memorizes Dhamma, does not lose the way. So this is really our first and foremost form. So more than the particular schedule, more than the particular meditation technique, it's this devotion to the present moment. And just because it sounds easy, of course, we all know it's not that easy. What's easy is to feel it's not relevant right now because it's just an achy body that's being known or whatever. But there are many uh, other forms that basically support this first and foremost form in our retreating experience. Like, for example, Noble Silence that Matt mentioned in the introduction. You know, one of the most obvious forms on this kind of retreat is the Noble Silence. You know, a lot of times people ask you what you did over the weekend, you say, I went on a silent retreat because it it sort of stands out 
that we didn't talk once the retreat got going or didn't really talk in a social way. Like Matt said, there may be moments when there's functional speech, but we're not using speech as entertainment at all during this three days. And so as a particular form, this is really easy to understand, you know, don't talk. Don't read unless, you know, there's something functional you need to read. But we're not reading as entertainment. We're not even reading in terms of studying. We're just putting aside that occupation of the mind with language as much as is possible given, you know, what, what our duties are really letting go of unnecessary language, use of language, in terms of talking, in terms of reading, in terms of writing. And the idea is, of course, to help us remember this first foremost form, which is to be devoted to sort of really generate devotional energy for the present moment, to sort of remember its relevance and to see it as a beautiful thing, and this is important, you know, like, uh, that's why, you know, we have a talk like this at the beginning of a retreat to inspire us a little bit, because otherwise, because of the pervasiveness of the present moment, it's always the present moment, it's so easy to dismiss it, because more than anything we think, well, I already know the present moment, I've had a lot of present moments, it's not very special. <laughs> You know, and so it's so easy to kind of dismiss it. And we all have this capacity for love, you know, this devotion, this, uh, it can be a kind of curiosity. And noble silence kind of puts a frame around it. It's like a sign of respect for the present moment. That's how I would hold the noble silence. It's like saying, there's something here relevant enough that I'm going to put aside probably my most uh, pervasive preoccupation, which is playing with language, you know, thinking about things, talking about things, writing about things, reading about things. It's, you know, we fill up our lives with a lot of that language. Now, of course, we're, it's not so easy to stop thinking about things, but we can do those other three, not reading, not writing, not talking. And it's a sign of respect, like we would naturally have for something that's, that we're devoted to. We're willing to kind of treat it with respect, just like you go into a beautiful temple or cathedral or synagogue, and you know you just naturally want to use hushed voices. Or you see an object of real beauty, and you just naturally have that respectful attitude. Well, the noble silence is like a sign of our respect for the present moment, that there's something relevant. And so, as a community, we agree to sort of, uh, to this form. And the other sort of more concrete form is the schedule. And again, like, because there's something so beautiful, so relevant, so important, like the present moment, this, this amazing mystery that even more mysteriously we've missed our whole life because of our preoccupation. And so we have this schedule. 
You know, another thing we're willing to do when we have that devotional energy, maybe like, you know, those of you who are parents, when one of your kids got really sick, you know, or just in general raising a child, you know, the kind of devotional energy you need to put out to take care of all the ins and outs of raising a child, or just being a partner, just kind of keeping the relationship going, the intimate relationship or good friendship going, takes a real devotion. And our kind of uh, applying our heart, mind to the schedule, you know, and like Matt said, it's appropriate sometimes to modify it, especially those of you who've been practicing for a while and you have a sense, intuitive sense, of how to support your practice. You don't need to be tied to the schedule. But this is like an opportunity to practice obedience and submission. I was kind of looking forward to using those words. Because <laughs> I know it pushes our buttons. It pushes my buttons. But, but the idea is it's not like you're doing it for me or you're doing it for the Buddha. It's like we're doing it because we're in love with the present moment. We were inspired by the present moment. There's like a, this practice that's worthy of our devotion. And so it's like we're willing to bear this cross like to, as a way like to demonstrate our regard for the present moment. We're willing to kind of do the walking practice. Unless we have some clear sense that there's a better way to be devoted to the present moment, we just do the walking practice when it's walking time. And when it's sitting time, unless we have some clear intuitive sense that something else would be better, we just submit to the next sitting period. And then when it's eating time, we just submit to the meal. We practice being mindful, being open to the present moment with the food that's actually there, with the people that we actually are sitting next to. Not the people we wanted to sit next to, but the people we're actually next to, with the weather that we actually have in the present moment with the clothes that we actually brought on the retreat, the bed that we actually have, the sheets, the talks that Mark's giving. It's like we can practice submitting. This is like, if, if the present moment is truly our guru, our teacher, and in Buddhism, this is really our teacher, more than the Buddha, the Buddha, in a, in a more direct way, it has nothing to do with the guy who lived 2,500 years ago. The Buddha is this inherent quality of, of wakefulness, seeing Dhamma, knowing Dhamma the way it is. This is our true refuge. These are our true refuges. Buddha knowing Dhamma, this experience of being present. And so... Like anything, if we're really inspired, we're willing to submit. And so use the schedule in that way. I mean, even the schedule in the most general sense, not running away from the retreat, staying here, you know. And not just staying here physically, but staying here like uh, in the activity of being devoted to the present moment, remembering the present moment. No matter how messy the mind gets, no matter how much you think you're ruining your retreat, you can be present with that. That is the present moment, right? So we can, we can remember, I'm devoted to the present moment no matter how ugly it gets, no matter how beautiful it gets. 
we can be devoted. Oh, this is how it is now. This is how it is. In the schedule, the, the sort of container of the retreat itself, the commitment to being here together, well, it's all about, uh, like, well, prove it. If, you really, if we really think the present moment is relevant, well, we prove it by showing up. Showing up means doing what's next in the schedule. Or literally just showing up and opening to the present moment. But just letting ourselves follow along in the community, you know, as it is, like I mentioned, and not always sort of second-guessing. You know how our mind likes to second-guess. Even when we're having a really good retreat experience, the mind can go, yeah, but it would be even nicer if the sunset would linger a little longer or the, you know, just a little warmer or if my roommate was just a little less fidgety or you know, Mark just didn't talk so long or, you know, all these things that we can... Basically, we're not practicing submission. So think about this as a form in the practice that, uh, you know, this retreat hasn't been perfectly designed for you. It's just been set up. And the idea is, of course, you know, I think it's fair to say the people who are involved in setting up, we had good intentions. But it's not going to be perfect for any one person. It's a compromise. And so, but it's perfect in that way because some things will feel really good, some things won't feel so good. But in any case, we're going to practice submitting to it because it's about the present moment. It isn't about a particular condition. It's about things as they are. Now, I'll talk about this in a moment because it's part of the form, too. Part of the form is the investigation, like I mentioned before. Mostly I've been talking about the devotion part that I said, you know, devotion to the present moment. Well, what does that mean, the present moment? So part of the form of retreating is this experience or this activity of, of investigation. And what it is, it's, it's developing the value of truthfulness. Like, uh, it's an actual desire to know things as they are, to want to understand the truth of things. And in particular, the truth of our own experience, which is just another way of saying the truth of the mind. Because the experience here and now is the mind, right? The experience you're having right now, where is that experience? It's in, in the mind. Of course, we think it's out here, you know. This is the experience in this room that I'm having. But that's just a thought. The seeing, the hearing, the sense of knowing. All of this is in the mind. We're getting to know the mind. What is this mind experience, this heart experience? What is the truth of it? Not philosophically speaking, but the direct, direct knowing, what is this? Part of the way we do this, part of the form, is to name whether we do that out loud in our mind or just in the noticing, 
but just to not get confused by the objects that are being known, the achiness in the knee that's being known, or the in-breath that's being known, or the sound of someone blowing their nose that's being known. We just name it, oh, hearing, thinking, aching. So that the mind isn't getting lost in the object, but as understanding that there's the space of the mind, the space of the present moment, knowing hearing, knowing aching, knowing thinking. See, normally the mind's habit is to get lost or absorbed into the particular object. But because our real devotion is toward the present moment, then it's like what we're remembering, what we're devoted to, is the perspective of here and now, or the perspective of the space of the mind here and now, more than the particular object that's being known in the space of the present moment. And so you can do that even right now, like as you're hearing my voice and thinking about the meaning of my wor- the words that I'm speaking, you might just be able to flash back and forth between kind of a fixation on the particular words or the experience, this sort of story that we're telling yourself, I'm here, it's the first night of a retreat, Mark's talking about the present moment, and sort of softening the fixation on the meaning of what's going on now, and just having a sense of the space. This is all being known here, now, in the space of the mind, in the space of the present moment. So this is the kind of investigation I'm talking about learning not to be confused by the particular objects, but maintaining this devotion. It's really a devotion to wisdom, the wisdom that understands that this is the present moment. And there's a particular quality here. You can call it stillness or peace. But there's something that comes out of this recognition of the present moment, contentment, or even joy. Because when the, in order to understand, in order to have an experience of what I'm calling the present moment, or the wholeness, or the unity of things as they are, the mind has to let go of its fixation on things, self, other, good, bad, this, that, first day of the retreat versus second day of the retreat, (coughs) early, late, all these concepts where the mind gets fixated kind of uh, uh, break apart or uh, dissipate the mind, scatter the mind, disturb the mind. And so when the mind uh, expresses its devotion to the present, it's really uh, orienting toward wholeness instead of dissipation and scatteredness, dualism, this and that, good and bad. It's like a spiritual healing that can happen in a moment and then can disappear in in the next moment. Every time there's an authentic devotion to the present moment, recognition and devotion to the present moment, there's like a healing 
And there's the experience of wholeness that comes out of that healing. By unification, joy arises. The, the bliss of samadhi, or unification, arises in the mind. Feeling a deep feeling of contentment, like whatever I wanted, this is it. Whatever I thought I wanted, this is it. This is the peace, this is the ease, this is the sense of wholeness and okayness that I was actually looking for. So the part of the form of practice is really this uh, learning to rest, you know, and a more gross manifestation is that it's just willing to be still trusting stillness, both stillness in the most gross sense in the body. You know, so when you sit down at the meal and there the, there it is, the food in front of you, to just before you immediately reach for the spoon or fork, just to appreciate the stillness of the body in a moment, like really resting. And then to notice the counterpart, uh, counterpart part in the mind, the stillness of the mind. So like there's a thought, oh, this food looks good, or oh, I'm not so sure I'm going to like this food. But then that thought ends, and before the next thought begins, there's just a moment of stillness in the mind, kind of a resting before the next thought takes birth. And then that thought will eventually end, and there's another moment of silence or stillness. So we're learning this other part of the form. You see it's getting more subtle. We're learning to rest in stillness. Trust and rest in stillness or silence. Stillness in terms of the body, silence in terms of the mind. So instead of being a doer, you know, the guy or the woman who's doing the retreat, who's doing the sit, who's doing the walking practice, who's doing the eating practice. There's a sense of the only activity is resting or allowing things to be. So we're giving up. We're actually letting the doer die for a moment. Not forever. We don't need to have this idea the doer is dying and he'll never, she'll never be born again. But we're really uh, practicing a devotion to the stillness. It's like we're starting to see that this sort of more subtle manifestation of the present moment is the silence or stillness or peace or ease or release. And we're, we're like expressing our devotion now by resting there. That's how devotion, that's like how we express our love for the present moment is we rest there. We don't need to do anything about it. We don't need to celebrate. We don't need to hold on to it. We don't need to tell anybody or imagine we're going to tell somebody about it. But we just express our true love and respect by resting there for as long as it lasts until the activity of the mind, you know, takes birth again. The, ha the habit of the mind to be active takes birth. And we're not disappointed because... The next birth, you know, the next thought, the next worry, it doesn't actually, 
it's a, it may be a distraction, but it doesn't really take away from the silence or the stillness. It's just a disturbance that can distract the mind if we let it get distracted. But we don't want to turn uh, silent. We don't want to see them as opposed to one another. So first we learn to recognize the silence or the stillness when thoughts end. But then we want to begin to recognize that it never goes away. It's just obscured when there's activity, when we're doing, thinking, planning, moving, eating. But we can still see it. That's uh, sort of even maybe a deeper practice of trust, that it never goes away. The last thing I want to mention as part of the form is this practice of kindness or compassion. And it's related to the precepts that we'll do in just a few minutes when we're basically committing as a community to practice non-harming. Of course, it'd be nice to make this commitment forever, but for sure, during this retreat, we, we formally commit to not harming ourselves or others to kind of create this umbrella or this orb this very particular energy that this is a safe place. This is a safe place to be a human being because everybody here is committing to non-harming in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. This is a, one of the sort of secondary advantages of noble silence is it's just not so easy to hurt one another because usually our weapon of choice is our words. So given that we're not talking much, it's just much less likely we're going to harm one another through our words or harm ourselves. So there's sort of two parts to this form of non-harming. One is to, like, um, you know, have like a, a set of breaks. So when we start noticing that we're rushing, well, that's a very subtle, maybe not so subtle, but a subtle kind of violence, you know, to ourselves and maybe to others. Because if we're rushing, we're basically radiating out to the whole group, you know, you better hurry up or you might miss something, <laughs> you know. And this is, this is something, I mean, we're always doing for each other. And then we get a society that's, addicted to rushing. So one of the gifts that we give each other and one of the ways we practice non-harming is we just slow down a little bit. And we're happy, you know, when we naturally end up in those places where two people come into the same place at the same time. It's like, it's such a joy to just stop and, you know, let the other person go first. Hold the door open for somebody. You know, all these things that we're too busy to do during the day during our normal days, we can do here. We can just practice not rushing. We can practice taking care of people. When you go through the food line, you know, on the one hand, we're really taking care of the body, thinking of the food as medicine, but we're also taking care of the whole community, leaving food, knowing that we can always go back for more, but just making sure that there's going to be enough for everybody the first round, and then going back, taking more if the body needs more. Like Damon said, there's always going to be really good food around, so we don't need to worry about uh, not getting good nutrition because there will be plenty of food around. 
But just that thought of like taking care of everybody, not harming, is really nice. When we clean up after ourselves in the bathroom so the sinks and everything are kind of wiped down so the next person comes and they just feel uh, kind of more safe because the sink's clean. All these little things we can do, or as Matt mentioned, leaving the cushions, uh, your area kind of organized neatly so when people walk into the meditation space, they don't get this feeling like it's a chaotic world, you know, which of course it is to a certain degree, but we can consciously take care of one another in all these small ways. You know, of course, sometimes sexual energy arises in our minds, but we don't act it out. It's like even the when we, you know, one of the precepts is not harming with our sexual energy. Now, of course, people aren't going to be asking people on dates and, you know, trying to hook up with people. But even like if you if your mind is inclined to think about that, either with somebody here or somebody elsewhere, you can just say, you know, this isn't really the place for that. It would be so nice for this place not to have that energy. So we put it down as a way of taking care of ourselves, but also as a way of taking care of other people. That, that kind of energy is a little... Uh, creates a little anxiety because, you know, it's just genetically a deep the whole thing about do they like me? Does she or he like me? Do I like them? You know, all that kind of wanting. So, you know, as a way of taking care, as a way of non-harming, we, we practice putting it down no matter how many times it comes up. And not that we're afraid of it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just how it is. But we can practice not watering it. That's really the practice. We're just not going to water it now. As much as we can help it, we're just not going to water it. We choose not to to kind of keep the, the space a little bit more simple, to more conducive to doing this devotional practice, devotion to the present moment. So I'll leave it here. I'd also like to welcome everyone and also invite us all to notice this feeling that maybe we could call sacred or just the wholesomeness of a group of people coming together like this. I always like, um, I think partly because I feel it viscerally, I feel it in my bones, like how... um, What a deep groove it is for a human being to do this kind of practice, especially doing it this way together, this, in a way, paradoxical activity of retreating, but doing it in community together, where we're letting go of our socializing for a number of days, but we're doing that together. What a powerful and unique, but in a way also, there's deep roots to this practice. Human beings have been doing this in various forms, various ways, probably in every culture throughout time. So I think it's useful to take some moments and connect with our ancestors, you know, all of the men and women who have been in monastic settings over the centuries, 
the various hermits and yogis and nuns and monks and lay people who have gone away into the woods, into the caves, on retreat in one way or another. All of them in some way appreciating the value of stepping out of the ordinary routines. And not as a way of saying, you know, ordinary routines are bad, but much more an appreciation in the value of this turning inward. Like this is the true place for exploration, you know, more than examining, you know, new things in life or exploring new worlds, getting to know our heart, getting to know the mind is the most relevant investigation. And so as a group of people taking on this practice of retreating for these three days, we can expect what other people have found, which is there will be probably moments of real joy, just just the joy of being free of our duties and responsibilities and the joy, feeling the gratitude and the love and the good feelings of community and feeling all the resistance coming up in, in moments where we feel how awkward it is not to be talking or awkward it is to be sitting still when our mind is racing all the different ways that resistance and aversion and impatience can manifest. So we're not going to be surprised because we know up front that's actually what we signed up for. We've signed up for all the beauty, in which case we're practicing not getting attached, letting the beauty, the goodness of the experience heal the heart, heal the mind, but not with any attachment. And then all the resistance, all the negativity that might come up, We also use that for insight, to see that it's not personal. It's just stuff that needs to move, stuff that needs to arise and move. And as much as best we can, we give it permission to be what it is, to move as it needs to move. So as a particular theme for this retreat, I thought, you know, it would be nice, especially we have some newer people and those of us who've been on many, 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 many retreats, the number of you have been on many, 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 many retreats over the decades of your practice. So we have both. We have people relatively new to retreat practice and a number of people who've been practicing for a long, long time and probably people in between. To take a fresh look at the form of retreat practice and really understand the form, the particular activity of retreating, and see it in terms of our deepest aspiration. Sometimes we call this understanding the relative and the absolute, because there are a lot of relative things to being on retreat, you know. There's a schedule, there's a form to sitting, there's a way we eat our meals, there's the noble silence, and there's the following the five precepts. 
And, you know, we can get really tight about the form if we forget about the aspiration. So the form, all the different forms involved in retreating are only useful in the context of the aspiration. You could say freedom. But freedom, you know, requires a form for us, at least initially. The form becomes to look more and more like freedom the more we understand the practice. But we never leave beyond behind the form. The form is not a problem. And so for the old-timers, you know, we really appreciate the form. We don't have a problem with the form, even though we may not be so dependent on it. Just because we don't need it doesn't mean we don't do it. Just because the Buddha maybe didn't need to sit doesn't mean he didn't sit when he was 80 years old. You know, evidently a fully enlightened being. So we can have that same attitude about the form of retreating. So the first and foremost form in the retreat experience is this devotion to the present moment. And uh, it really connects with our deepest aspiration, which is to be free. But the freedom we're looking for is freedom here and now, no matter the conditions. So our devotion to the present moment is really a way to express our freedom because we're not going to be devoted to things as they are if we have an idea that I'd rather, this is the kind of moment I'm looking for, this is what I want. So the primary form, and it gets more specific than this, of course, but first and foremost, if you can remember one thing, we're practicing being devoted to the present moment. And so I want to talk about that, both in terms of like, what do we mean by devotion and what do we mean by present moment? So devotion is this heartfelt, whole-hearted, relationship or this wholehearted way of relating. So it's like total commitment, total surrender, total trust, really love, I love in the deepest, most universal sense of the word. So sometimes, you know, people think in Theravada Buddhism, you know, they don't talk a lot about love or devotion. We are, I think, as a tradition of practice, there's a lot of love, but it's not so much, although there is some real devotion to religious objects like the statue of the Buddha or other particular visual forms, but the real devotional object in this style of practice is the love for the present moment, the deep trust in the present moment, taking refuge in the present moment that the, whatever it is we're looking for, it's here or now or nowhere. So we don't look outside of the present moment. We keep turning to it. So we can, um, we've had several conversations at the center recently about the importance of devotional energy in practice. And as some of you know, there's now a singing, chanting group once a month and we now have a more prominent altar and soon to be even more beautiful as we're going to install a, a more substantial altar at some point uh, a community member's been working on. 
picking a section of an old tree that's she's she's a wood carver and she's really made beautiful you know and for some people it pushes their buttons because they you know for whatever reason just the way a person's mind condition they might think oh i don't want something external that all of these things whether it's a statue of a buddha or flowers on the altar or people bowing down as some people like to do all of these if they're really useful or pointing the heart, directing the heart, uh, inspiring the heart to be in love with the present moment, with things as they are. In Buddhism, we call this Dhamma. This is from the Dhammapada, collection of verses from the Buddha. One who abides in Dhamma, the way things are. One who delights in Dhamma, who contemplates Dhamma, who memorizes Dhamma, does not lose the way. So this is really our first and foremost form. So more than the particular schedule, more than the particular meditation technique, it's this devotion to the present moment. And just because it sounds easy, of course, we all know it's not that easy. What's easy is to feel it's not relevant right now because it's just an achy body that's being known or whatever. But there are many uh, other forms that basically support this first and foremost form in our retreating experience. Like, for example, Noble Silence that Matt mentioned in the introduction. You know, one of the most obvious forms on this kind of retreat is the noble silence. You know, a lot of times people ask you what you did over the weekend, you say, I went on a silent retreat. Because it it sort of stands out that we didn't talk once the retreat got going or didn't really talk in a social way. Like Matt said, there may be moments when there's functional speech, but we're not using speech as entertainment at all during this three days. And so as a particular form, this is really easy to understand, you know, don't talk. Don't read unless, you know, there's something functional you need to read. But we're not reading as entertainment. We're not even reading in terms of studying. We're just putting aside that occupation of the mind with language as much as is possible given, you know, what what our duties are, really letting go of unnecessary language, use of language, in terms of talking, in terms of reading, in terms of writing. And the idea is, of course, to help us remember this first foremost form, which is to be devoted to sort of really generate devotional energy for the present moment to sort of remember its relevance and to see it as a beautiful thing. And this is important. You know, like, uh, that's why, you know, we have a talk like this at the beginning of a retreat to inspire us a little bit because otherwise, because of the pervasiveness of the present moment, it's always the present moment, it's so easy to dismiss it because more than anything we think, well, 
I already know the present moment. I've had a lot of present moments. It's not very special. <laughs> you know? And so it's so easy to kind of dismiss it. And we all have this capacity for love, you know, this devotion, this... Uh, it can be a kind of curiosity. And noble silence kind of puts a frame around it. It's like a sign of respect for the present moment. That's how I would hold the noble silence. It's like saying, there's something here relevant enough that I'm going to put aside probably my most uh, pervasive preoccupation, which is playing with language, you know, thinking about things, talking about things, writing about things, reading about things. You know, we fill up our lives with a lot of that language. Now, of course, it's not so easy to stop thinking about things, but we can do those other three, not reading, not writing, not talking. And it's a sign of respect, like we would naturally have for something that we're devoted to. We're willing to kind of treat it with respect, just like you go into a beautiful temple or cathedral or synagogue and, you know, you just naturally want to use hushed voices. Or you see an object of real beauty and you just naturally have that respectful attitude. Well, the noble silence is like a sign of our respect for the present moment, that there's something relevant. And so, as a community, we agree to sort of, uh, to this form. And the other sort of more concrete form is the schedule. And again, like, because there's something so beautiful, so relevant, so important, like the present moment, this, this amazing mystery that even more mysteriously we've missed our whole life because of our preoccupation, then so we have the schedule. You know, another thing we're willing to do when we have that devotional energy, maybe like, you know, those of you who are parents, when one of your kids got really sick, you know, or just in general raising a child, you know, the kind of devotional energy you need to put out to take care of all the ins and outs of raising a child or just being a partner, just kind of, Keeping the relationship going, the intimate relationship or good friendship going, takes a real devotion. And our kind of uh, applying our heart, mind to the schedule, you know, and like Matt said, it's appropriate sometimes to modify it, especially those of you who've been practicing for a while and you have a sense, intuitive sense, of how to support your practice. You don't need to be tied to the schedule. But this is like an opportunity to practice obedience and submission. I was kind of looking forward to using those words. Because <laughs> I know it pushes our buttons. It pushes my buttons. But, but the idea is it's not like you're doing it for me or you're doing it for the Buddha. It's like we're doing it because we're in love with the present moment. We, we're inspired by the present moment. There's like a, this practice that's worthy of our devotion. And so... It's like we're willing to bear this cross like, to, as a way like, to demonstrate our regard for the present moment. We're willing to kind of do the walking practice. Unless we have some clear sense 
that is a better way to be devoted to the present moment, we just do the walking practice when it's walking time. And when it's sitting time, unless we have some clear intuitive sense that something else would be better, we just submit to the next sitting period. And then when it's eating time, we just submit to the meal. We practice being mindful, being open to the present moment with the food that's actually there, with the people that we actually are sitting next to, not the people we wanted to sit next to, but the people we're actually next to, with the weather that we actually have in the present moment, with the clothes that we actually brought on the retreat, the bed that we actually have, the sheets, the talks that Mark's giving. It's like we can practice submitting. This is like, if, if the present moment is truly our guru, our teacher, and in Buddhism, this is really our teacher, more than the Buddha. The Buddha, in a, in a more direct way, it has nothing to do with the guy who lived 2,500 years ago. The Buddha is this inherent quality of, of wakefulness, seeing Dhamma, knowing Dhamma the way it is. This is our true refuge. These are our true refuges. Buddha knowing Dhamma, this experience of being present. And so, like anything, if we're really inspired, we're willing to submit. And so, use the schedule in that way. I mean, even the schedule in the most general sense, not running away from the retreat, staying here, you know. And not just staying here physically, but staying here like uh, in the activity of being devoted to the present moment, remembering the present moment. No matter how messy the mind gets, no matter how much you think you're ruining your retreat, you can be present with that. That is the present moment, right? So we can, we can remember, I'm devoted to the present moment no matter how ugly it gets, no matter how beautiful it gets. We can be devoted. Oh, this is how it is now. This is how it is. And the schedule, the, the sort of container of the retreat itself, the commitment to being here together, well, it's all about, uh, like, well, prove it. If, you really, if we really think the present moment is relevant, well, we prove it by showing up. Showing up means doing what's next in the schedule. Or literally just showing up and opening to the present moment. But just letting ourselves follow along in the community, you know, as it is, like I mentioned, and not always sort of second-guessing. You know how our mind likes to second-guess. Even when we're having a really good retreat experience, the mind can go, yeah, but it would be even nicer if the sunset would linger a little longer or the, you know, just a little warmer or if my roommate was just a little less fidgety or you know, Mark just didn't talk so long or, you know, all these things that we can... Basically, we're not practicing submission. So think about this as a form in the practice. That, uh, you know, this retreat hasn't been perfectly designed for you. It's just been set up. And the idea is, of course, you know, I think it's fair to say, the people who are involved in setting up, we had good intentions. But it's not going to be perfect for any one person. It's a compromise. 
And so, but it's perfect in that way because some things will feel really good, some things won't feel so good. But in any case, we're going to practice submitting to it because it's about the present moment. It isn't about a particular condition. It's about things as they are. Now, I'll talk about this in a moment because it's part of the form, too. Part of the form is the investigation, like I mentioned before. Mostly I've been talking about the devotion part. But I said, you know, devotion to the present moment. Well, what does that mean, the present moment? So part of the form of retreating is this experience or this activity of, of investigation. And what it is, it's, it's developing the value of truthfulness. Like, uh, it's an actual desire to know things as they are, to want to understand the truth of things. And in particular, the truth of our own experience, which is just another way of saying the truth of the mind, because the experience here and now is the mind, right? The experience you're having right now, where is that experience? It's in, in the mind. Of course, we think it's out here, you know, this is the experience in this room that I'm having. But that's just a thought. The seeing, the hearing, the sense of knowing, all of this is in the mind. We're getting to know the mind. What is this mind experience, this heart experience? What is the truth of it? Not philosophically speaking, but the direct, direct knowing, what is this? part of the way we do this, part of the form, is to name, whether we do that out loud in our mind or just in the noticing, but just to not get confused by the objects that are being known, the achiness in the knee that's being known, or the in-breath that's being known, or the sound of someone blowing their nose that's being known. We just name it, oh, hearing, thinking, aching. So that the mind isn't getting lost in the object, but as understanding that there's the space of the mind, the space of the present moment, knowing hearing, knowing aching, knowing thinking. See, normally the mind's habit is to get lost or absorbed into the particular object. But because our real devotion is toward the present moment, then it's like what we're remembering, what we're devoted to, is the perspective of here and now, or the perspective of the space of the mind here and now, more than the particular object that's being known in the space of the present moment. And so you can do that even right now, like as you're hearing my voice and thinking about the meaning of my wor the words that I'm speaking, you might just be able to flash back and forth between kind of a fixation on the particular words or the experience, the sort of story that we're telling yourself, I'm here, it's the first night of a retreat, Mark's talking about the present moment. And 
sort of softening the fixation on the meaning of what's going on now and just having a sense of the space. This is all being known here, now, in the space of the mind, in the space of the present moment. So this is the kind of investigation I'm talking about. Learning not to be confused by the particular objects, but maintaining this devotion. It's really a devotion to wisdom. The wisdom that understands that this is the present moment. And there's a particular quality here. You can call it stillness or peace. But there's something that comes out of this recognition of the present moment. Contentment or even joy. Because when the, in order to understand, in order to have an experience of what I'm calling the present moment or the wholeness or the unity of things as they are, the mind has to let go of its fixation on things. Self, other, good, bad, this, that, first day of the retreat versus second day of the retreat, (coughs) early, late, all these concepts where the mind gets fixated kind of uh, break apart or uh, dissipate the mind, scatter the mind, disturb the mind. And so when the mind uh, expresses its devotion to the present, it's really uh, orienting toward wholeness instead of dissipation and scatteredness, dualism, this and that, good and bad. It's like a spiritual healing that can happen in a moment and then can disappear in in the next moment. Every time there's an authentic devotion to the present moment, recognition and devotion to the present moment, there's like a healing. And there's the experience of wholeness that comes out of that healing. A unification. Joy arises. The the bliss of samadhi or unification arises in the mind. Feeling a deep feeling of contentment like whatever I wanted, this is it. Whatever I thought I wanted, This is it. This is the peace. This is the ease. This is the sense of wholeness and okayness that I was actually looking for. So the part of the form of practice is really this uh, learning to rest. You know, and a more gross manifestation is that it's just willing to be still, trusting stillness, both stillness in the most gross sense in the body. You know, so when you sit down at the meal and there there it is, the food in front of you, to just before you immediately reach for the spoon or fork, just to appreciate the stillness of the body in a moment like really resting. And then to notice the counterpart uh, part in the mind, the stillness of the mind. So like there's a thought, oh, this food looks good, or oh, I'm not so sure I'm going to like this food. But then that thought ends, and before the next thought begins, there's just a moment of stillness in the mind. 
kind of a resting before the next thought takes birth. And then that thought will eventually end. And there's another moment of silence or stillness. So we're learning this other part of the form. You see it's getting more subtle. We're learning to rest in stillness. Trust and rest in stillness or silence. Stillness in terms of the body, silence in terms of the mind. So instead of being a doer, you know, the guy or the woman who's doing the retreat, who's doing the sit, who's doing the walking practice, who's doing the eating practice, there's a sense of the only activity is resting or allowing things to be. So we're giving up, we're actually letting the doer die for a moment. Not forever, we don't need to have this idea the doer is dying and he'll never, she'll never be born again. But we're really uh, practicing a devotion to the stillness. It's like we're starting to see that this sort of more subtle manifestation of the present moment is the silence or stillness or peace or ease or release. And we're, we're like expressing our devotion now by resting there. That's how devotion, that's like how we express our love for the present moment is we rest there. We don't need to do anything about it. We don't need to celebrate. We don't need to hold on to it. We don't need to tell anybody or imagine we're going to tell somebody about it. But we just express our true love and respect by resting there for as long as it lasts until the activity of the mind, you know, takes birth again. The, ha- the habit of the mind to be active takes birth. And we're not disappointed because the next birth, you know, the next thought, the next worry, it doesn't actually, It's it may be a distraction, but it doesn't really take away from the silence or the stillness. It's just a disturbance that can distract the mind if we let it get distracted. But we don't want to turn uh, silent, we don't want to see them as opposed to one another. So first we learn to recognize the silence or the stillness when thoughts end. But then we want to begin to recognize that it never goes away. It's just obscured when there's activity, when we're doing, thinking, planning, moving, eating. But we can still see it. That's uh, sort of even maybe a deeper practice of trust, that it never goes away. last thing I want to mention as part of the form is this practice of kindness or compassion. And it's related to the precepts that we'll do in just a few minutes when we're basically committing as a community to practice non-harming. Of course, it would be nice to make this commitment forever, but for sure during this retreat we, we formally commit to not harming ourselves or others to kind of create this umbrella or this orb, this very particular energy that this is a safe place. This is a safe place to be a human being because everybody here is committing to non-harming in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. This is one of the sort of secondary advantages of noble silence is it's just 
not so easy to hurt one another because usually our weapon of choice is our words. So given that we're not talking much, it's just much less likely we're going to harm one another through our words or harm ourselves. So there's sort of two parts to this form of non-harming. One is to, like, um, you know, have like a, a set of breaks. So when we start noticing that we're rushing, well, that's a very subtle, maybe not so subtle, but a subtle kind of violence, you know, to ourselves and maybe to others. Because if we're rushing, we're basically radiating out to the whole group, you know, you better hurry up or you might miss something. <laughs> you know, and this is this is something I mean we're always doing for each other. And then we get a society that's addicted to rushing. So one of the gifts that we give each other and one of the ways we practice not harming is we just slow down a little bit. And we're happy you know, when we naturally end up in those places where two people are coming to the same place at the same time, it's like, it's such a joy to just stop and, you know, let the other person go first. Hold the door open for somebody. You know, all these things that we're too busy to do during the day, during our normal days, we can do here. We could just practice not rushing. We could practice taking care of people. When you go through the food line, you know, on the one hand, we're really taking care of the body, thinking of the food as medicine, but we're also taking care of the whole community, leaving food, knowing that we can always go back for more, but just making sure that there's going to be enough for everybody the first round, and then going back, taking more if the body needs more. Like Damon said, there's always going to be really good food around, so we don't need to worry about uh, not getting good nutrition, because there will be plenty of food around. But just that thought of like taking care of everybody, not harming, is really nice. When we clean up after ourselves in the bathroom so the sinks and everything are kind of wiped down so the next person comes and they just feel uh, kind of more safe because the sink's clean. All these little things we can do, or as Matt mentioned, leaving the cushions, uh, your area kind of organized neatly so when people walk into the meditation space, they don't get this feeling like it's a chaotic world, you know, which, of course, it is to a certain degree, but we can consciously take care of one another in all these small ways. You know, of course, sometimes sexual energy arises in our minds, but we don't act it out. It's like even the, when we, you know, one of the precepts is not harming with our sexual energy. Now, of course, people aren't going to be asking people on dates and you know, trying to hook up with people. But even like if you, if your mind is inclined to think about that, either with somebody here or somebody elsewhere, you can just say, you know, this isn't really the place for that. It would be so nice for this place not to have that energy. So we put it down as a way of taking care of ourselves, but also as a way of taking care of other people. That, that kind of energy is a little, uh, creates a little anxiety because, you know, it's just genetically a deep the whole thing about do they like me does she or he like me do I like them you know all that kind of wanting so you know as a way of taking care as a way of non-harming we we practice putting it down no matter how many times it comes up 
And not that we're afraid of it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just how it is. But we can practice not watering it. That's really the practice. We're just not going to water it now. As much as we can help it, we're just not going to water it. We choose not to to kind of keep the, the space a little bit more simple, to more conducive to doing this devotional practice, devotion to the present moment. So I'll leave it here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.